Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3. My first computer was a Tandy 1000. How many had one of those? Yeah, right on, huh? With Deskmate. Software that was doomed to be thrown away as obsolete as Bill Gates established his dominance over the computing world. Uh, I spent $2,000 on that computer, over $2,000 with the tax and the printer. I had a letter quality printer. You know what that meant? It, it was actually like a little typewriter with a flywheel, and it would go around there and you know, pick those little things. No dot matrix for me, no sir. How many of you remember dot matrix printers? You're really old. The Tandy 1000 had two 640K floppy drives, and I got the optional 20 meg hard card edition inside. So I had a hard drive in my computer. Can you imagine that? I know some of you are going, what's a hard drive? I know. <laughs> this is a Droid X2 by Motorola. Um, little green light was just flashing, and what that tells me is my voicemail is here, or my... my uh, my, uh, not voicemail, it would tell me if there was voicemail also, come on, my email, so I push the email button and it says, there you go, Chris Sutton sent me an email, what'd you say, Chris? <laughs> there we go, and she'd give me a little message about this, isn't that something? Email wasn't even invented when I had the Tandy 1000. This computer here, this computer in my telephone has uh, computing capabilities and memory far beyond what the Tandy 1000 had. And I can't wait to get the 4G model. <laughs> when Verizon comes out with the fourth generation uh, cell service here in the county, I'm getting a 4G droid. Oh yeah, maybe a Razor, yeah. More power, more power, more power! There will never be an end to the computing power that's created, as far as we can see. Just keeps getting more compact, more powerful, does more things, better and better and better. My first cell phone was installed in my car. Great big thing. And it made phone calls. That's all, just phone calls. <laughs> Now I'm holding a computer in my hand. I remember when Bill Gates said, we're going to be after a computer communication device as big as a, as a credit card. And I said, what a joke. That'll never happen. When it comes to computers, when it comes to the stuff of this world, there's a constant evolution as things get better, better, stronger, more powerful. But when it comes to life, there's only one power that's ever been or ever will be, and it can't be improved upon because it is the ultimate power. And we read about that ultimate power in Philippians chapter 3 when the Apostle Paul tells us what he exchanged all of the stuff of his life for. Verse 8, Yet I, in, I count all things, all of the stuff of life, I count it as a loss in exchange for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, 
For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now, he wasn't talking about earning salvation. He said, I didn't turn in all the stuff of my life and get salvation in return. He said, I looked at all the stuff of life and all the stuff that I was pursuing, and he said, none of that matters. It's like so much garbage when I can know Christ and be found in him, verse 9, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him, and here it is, the power of his resurrection. The one key thing that the Apostle Paul essentially let go of all of the stuff of life in order to pursue, he said, I want to know the power of his resurrection. That's what I care about. It is the power of life. The Apostle Paul believed that the power of the resurrection was the most important thing he could get and have and, and build in his life. And I want to look in the Word of God today and understand why he thought that resurrection power was so valuable. Why did he think that was so valuable? Well, first of all, he thought it was valuable because it's an incredible power. Turn with me to John chapter 11, please. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, of the town of Mary, excuse me, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to Jesus and said, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Apparently, Lazarus and Jesus had a special bond of friendship. Jesus loved all people, but he especially had a friendship with Lazarus. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now we could preach a whole sermon on that, couldn't we? On the timing of how God works out the things of our life. And the next time you think God is late showing up, just remember that he loves you. And he's planning something that's going to get glory to him and a blessing for you. He stayed in the place where he was two more days. Now drop down to verse 21, please. So Lazarus is sick. Now verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. In other words, in that resurrection to eternity someday. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world. Now drop down to verse 32, please. And then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled and he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. <laughs> 
And the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said, Lord, by this time there is a stench. I love what the King James says. Lord, by this time he stinketh. For he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with the grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to him, Loose him and let him go. Modern medicine is an incredible gift from God. Uh, I'm able to walk about freely today because of the great worth of an orthopedic surgeon. I'm able to pound the pulpit if I had one because of his work. Modern medicine is a wonderful thing. Many of you here have had your lives extended, the quality of life enhanced by modern medicine. It's a wonderful thing. My memory of my grandmother's end of her life goes back to the, the 1960s when I was a grade schooler, and my memory is I heard she was sick, and the next thing I know, she's dead. She had liver cancer. Well, today there's many things that can be done to extend the, the life of a person even with liver cancer. But even modern medicine has its limits. Many years ago, when I was a, a volunteer firefighter and an EMT, we were called to a doctor's office one time. The paramedics from Bellingham had been called out to Everson because this man went to the doctor knowing what was wrong, and either he was having a heart attack or about to have one or had just had one, and the doctor called the paramedics. And the paramedics came, they got the man in the wagon, got an IV started, everything's going fine, and down he went unconscious. And they called us to come help and do CPR while they did all the advanced life support. I mean, if there was ever a scenario where a guy ought to be able to be brought back from the dead, quote-unquote, that would be it. Nothing doing. Nothing doing. I've been at dozens of death scenes, and I've never seen anyone come in and say, Arise! I've had people want it to happen, but I've never had anybody say, come forth, and the deceased stand up. How much power does it take to do that after four days? Now that's the power that, that the scripture claims Jesus had. It's the power that Jesus claimed to have had. It's the power that John and Peter and Paul and all of the apostles said, this is the power of resurrection, the power that is inherent within Christ, the power by which he said, I lay my life down and I take it back. And some would say, well, that's an incredible power if it's real, if it's not a piece of fantasy. Turn with me a couple chapters to John 19, please. I think the power of resurrection is an incredible power. I also think it is an authentic power. 
John 19. Starting in verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day or a special day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, if you don't understand that, in the process of crucifixion, people actually died from suffocation. You hang like this, and eventually you lose strength, and you go down like this, and you suffocate because you can't lift yourself up to breathe. And people would literally hang there for days, and that was the Roman idea. It, the whole point of crucifixion was not to kill people, but so, more so to, to torturously leave them there so that others would walk by and say, hey, this is what the Roman government can do, so you better mind your P's and Q's. And so they would hang there literally for days. And of course, Jesus was beaten terribly before he was put there. That was not common. They, they would commonly just be put up there on the cross and slowly suffocate to death. But the Jews said, we don't want people hanging there on the Sabbath. And so we want their legs to be broken. If you're hanging like this, trying to breathe, you have to push up on your legs. And so if they break your legs, you can't push up any longer to breathe. That's the gruesome truth. Verse 32. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first of the people crucified with Christ and of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they said, he's already dead. So they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen, that's John who's writing this, he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe, for these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. There was a prophecy in the Old Testament that said none of his bones will be broken, and if they'd have broken his legs, it would have broken the Old Testament prophecy. And so he died before they could break his bones. Verse 20, chapter 20, please, now. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, and this is John's account. It'll sound very similar to what, what Matthew wrote that we heard that Chuck read. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken away, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. By the way, I heard something this morning that I never heard before. The angel rolled the stone away and sat on it. Doesn't that sound just a little bit to you like this is not any big deal here. Just roll it away and sit there. You know, angels don't have to sit. They could hover. <laughs> he could, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Angels are spirit beings that move about. He didn't have to sit down. He wasn't tired. He didn't sit on, the, on that stone by accident. He sat there to go, tomb's open, stone's rolled back, no problem. Wow. Verse 2, she ran and came to Simon Peter, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. See, the disciples were still grappling with this. They didn't understand the resurrection. They didn't really even understand the crucifixion. We do not know where they've laid him. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there. Yet he did not go in. 
Simon Peter came and followed him and went right into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the other claws, but folded together in a place by itself. You see, Jesus resurrected right up through the grave clothes. He didn't get up and unwind them. He just came right up out through it. Verse 8, Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know or they did not fully understand the scripture that he must rise again. When John writes this gospel, he's writing it looking back and he goes, man, we were so thick-headed, we didn't get it until then. And the disciples went away to their own homes. The resurrection of Christ is significant because Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down and I can take it back up. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus himself said, I have this power of resurrection. And of course, the story gets even thicker here in Matthew 12 when the scribes and the Pharisees said, Teacher, we want to see a sign or a miracle that proves who you are. That was an Old Testament system that God had set in place so that the Jewish people would not be fooled by charlatans. And so he said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah the prophet. See, Jesus said, you should be able to read the Old Testament scriptures and realize that I am the Messiah, the Savior. They speak of me, and they spoke so clearly that they should not have needed a miraculous sign. And their intent for asking about the sign was to prove him wrong. They were not genuine seekers. Even so, he gave them a sign, the sign of Jonah the prophet. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he said, here's my sign. I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to come back to life. Now, we just read in the Gospel of John that he was buried and that he came back to life. Jesus said the grave would be empty, and it is. Even though he was a verifiably historical figure, And even though the enemies of Christ posted Roman guards at his tomb, they could not keep him in. There is no place in modern Jerusalem that says, here lies Jesus of Nazareth. There are two places that claim to be the empty tomb. One in the city and one out of the city. The one out of the city is the one you always visualize. The one in the city is called the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre. There is no place that says Jesus is here. And believe me, those people hated him so much they would have kept him there. Let me just offer you one proof of the resurrection, if you will, one support. Fifty days after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ came the day of Pentecost. It literally means the 50, Penta. And it it was a festival for the Old Testament Jewish folks And on the day of Pentecost is when God sent the Holy Spirit for the first time to indwell the disciples. And Peter stood up with a crowd of thousands. 3,000 of them came to faith in Christ. So we have no idea how many thousands of people were there. He stood up and preached the first sermon of the Christian era. And he talked about the resurrection of Christ. Now, can you you possibly imagine in your mind... The old city of Jerusalem is not a huge place. It might be like downtown Ferndale. And Peter stands up, and all these people are gathered together, and he's saying, you crucified Christ, and God raised him from the dead. Within shouting distance, they could have said, 
Liar! Come right over here. Here is the tomb of Jesus still sealed and his bones are there. But nobody said that. Nobody ever said that. Many people over the years have said, oh, he, he didn't raise from the dead. That's not possible. But nobody ever pointed to the place and said, there he is. Because he's not there. Because this is an authentic power and an authentic claim to power. You remember that guy? Do you remember the first Gulf War, those of you that are really old like me? He said, this will be the mother of all battles. You remember that claim? He said, the soldiers will swim in their own blood. I guess he didn't say which soldiers he was talking about. During that first Gulf War, he said at one point, we have taken thousands of American prisoners. <laughs> that war was the mother of something. It was the mother of all tall tales. Because his words didn't come close to coming true. Saddam Hussein could not control his future. But Jesus could. And he did. He said the tomb would be empty. And it was and it is proving he was who he said he was. One of those people in the day of Christ who was aware of Jesus and aware of the empty tomb was a guy named Saul of Tarsus. Now think about it, folks. We don't often put Saul in our mental picture alive and aware at the time of Christ. We think of him after the time of Christ. Surely he got saved after that time. He became a believer after that time. But what was he doing? He was going about persecuting Christians. When did that start? That started almost immediately after the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Paul was already a Pharisee. He was already a ruler of the Jews. He was already a well-known intellectual of his day. He was aware of the things with the person of Christ. And Jesus hollered to him from heaven and said, Buddy, I have something for you to do. And he said, Yes, Lord. He didn't say, You can't be talking to me. You're still in the grave. Paul knew the grave was empty. As an unbeliever, he had to. Everybody did. And he didn't say, Oh, he's risen from the dead. I can't persecute people anymore. No. They all knew the facts, and they ignored them because they hated them, and he pressed on in his persecution of Christians until God reached down and touched him, and he was able to come to faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul knew that the resurrection was an incredible power and an authentic power, but he also knew it as a liberating power for himself personally as well as for others. In Hebrews 2, we read these words, well, the, the resurrection of Christ liberates us from the fear of death. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, shared in that flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those, liberate those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I just read again this week in a, a magazine, they were, they were recapping some things that the Navy SEALs have done. 
and uh, the article had to do with the president using them and so on. And, and I just read again of, of that rescue that they did uh, on the sea, in, uh, on the, uh, would be the east side of, uh, of Africa, I believe. And uh, the pirates had this, this captain in a boat. The boat's bobbing in the water, and the Navy SEALs are on a, a Navy ship. And at one point, one of those guys points a gun at the head of the captain. And at that moment, three shots, three kills. Boom. Captain is liberated. Tremendous, tremendous save. Jesus has liberated us from the guy who had a gun to our head. And that person was Satan. Because of our sin and because of the righteousness of God, Satan held us hostage because of our sin until the death of Christ. What we would understand from the whole of Scripture is this. God cannot forgive sin just because he wants to. The sin had to be paid for. And so Satan was right there saying, you can't have them, you can't have them. And because of his control and because of our sin in us, we lived in the fear of death. But when Jesus died on the cross, God made it possible for our sin to be removed if we would believe in him. And now this is our reality. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, the law that accuses us of sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, according to Philippians 3, spent his life before Christ trying to earn righteousness. No doubt trying to come to a point where he could say, I am righteous enough for heaven. But when he came to faith in Christ, he said, now I have the righteousness of Christ. I'm liberated. I'm ready to go. What a tremendous, tremendous thing. With the work of salvation finished, the penalty of sin paid, God is free to forgive sin. And through the forgiveness of sin, God is free to give us confidence of eternal life. That's why a dear saint like George Fujimoto, who died almost a year ago now, could become ill and land in the hospital for the first time in 90 years and lay there in a hospital bed not knowing what was wrong or what the outcome would be, saying, I've had a great life. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to stay. Whatever the Lord has, I'm at peace. That's the liberation that comes from Christ. Through the resurrection. The resurrection power is a liberating power. It's not just a liberating power. It's not just about heaven. It's not just about being freed from the penalty of sin. It's also a transforming power. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8, please. One of the great, great stories in the Gospels. Luke chapter 8. If we wanted to talk about transformation, we could certainly speak of Saul. Trans, uh, transformed from being a persecutor to a preacher. Peter was transformed from being fearful to being bold. Greek philosophers in Athens, when the Apostle Paul went and preached Christ to them, and it says they, when he talked of the resurrection, some laughed at him. But it says others, a few, believed. Transformed from a skeptic to a believer. What a transformation. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 26. 
And, the, and they, the disciples, sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite or across from Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time, and he wore no clothes. Can you, can you picture that? Nor did he live in a house, but he lived in the tomb, so he was probably really clean. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him with a loud voice. He said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, that was the demon speaking. <coughs> for, he had um, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him. And he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he, the demon, said, Legion, which is a word for possibly a thousand, like a thousand soldiers was a legion. What is your name? Legion, because many demons had entered him. And the demons begged Jesus that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man, entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. And when those who fed them, fed the swine, saw what happened, they fled, and they told it in the city and the country. Then they went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Can Jesus transform a whole life radically? Can that really happen? Do people really change? So many folks in our world don't believe it's possible. They don't believe it's possible on a small scale, much less a scale like this. Can God do that? Can God change somebody's life? I have to say, absolutely. I could offer you one, one example after another. I, I could start with a a fellow that I'll call Jack from our last church. Jack was an alcoholic to about the time he was in his mid-30s. Uh, spent a hitch in the Marines. In his mid-30s, somebody got him to an AA meeting. And he came to faith in Christ in the process of coming to our church and with friends and whatnot. And he started growing in Christ. Became our janitor at the church. Started going to school. Started to learn a trade. And in time, God brought a godly woman into our church whose husband had died. And they met, and after a, a, a fairly long uh, relationship and courtship, they got married, had a couple of kids, or excuse me, they got married and moved away because of jobs. He got a job, a trade, a, a good trade, a good job, had a couple of kids, and continued living for the Lord. Can God change people's lives that much? Can you go from being a, an alcoholic with nothing going on in your life to becoming a godly family man with a job who is productive for the Lord and the community? 
Is that really possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know the song that we sing, uh, by some people's accounts too much and by some people's accounts not enough. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A fellow named Isaac Newton wrote that song. Is that the right name? No, Isaac Newton wrote some other hymns. John Newton. I got half of it right. Thank the Lord. John Newton began his adult life as a, as a varsity sinner. He was excellent in all kinds of sin. And then he became the captain of a slave ship because there was money in it. And in time, God got a hold of him. And not only did he stop buying or transporting, selling slaves, he, got, he became a Christian, a believer in Christ, who said, that's wrong. And he was one of the key people to lead the transformation of England against slavery. Why does that happen? How does that happen? It happens by the resurrection power of Christ. That's why Paul said, I want to know that power, that transforming power. The Apostle Paul already knew it in his life to a great degree. He said, man, I look back at my life and I can't believe the wonderful changes that have happened. I just want to know that more and more. Can God help you overcome a difficulty in your life? Absolutely. Can he give you hope in place of despair? Absolutely. Can he give you peace in place of anxiety? Absolutely. Can he give you certainty about eternity? Absolutely. Paul knew the transforming power of God personally because he knew it personally and he knew it in other people's lives. And he was so excited about it because it's an obtainable power. It's an obtainable power. And the first thing we need to understand about receiving the, the power of Christ is this. It is a gift from God. Resurrection power is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it, explains it for us. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. When we talk about resurrection and salvation, you need to understand it's a brand new creation God does. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. We were all like John Newton, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and by nature we were children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now, do those verses say, after you really scrub your life up, and you really do a lot of great things, and you stop going to all those bad places, and hanging out with those bad people, and when you get really good, then God's going to say, okay, I'll give you that resurrection power. No, they say when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. To be dead in sin means helplessly stuck. The Apostle Paul was helplessly stuck. 
But God, who is rich in mercy, doesn't look down and say, you don't deserve this, I'm not going to give it to you. He looks down and says, you don't deserve this, you can't help yourself, you are so helpless that I am going to help you. By grace you have been saved. This means a gift. By a gift you have been saved. When you believe in Christ as your Savior, God raises you from the dead to a new spiritual life. Christianity is not a method of reformation or remodel. It's a means of resurrection. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive, resurrected together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Before there was the internet, there was the uh, Sears and Roebuck catalog. That's all the internet is. It's a new Sears and Roebuck catalog with endless pages, basically. The old Sears and Roebuck catalog was about that thick, the big book. You got a big book, I think, in the fall and a big book in the summer. And then you got a Christmas book. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You get that baby, and when you're a kid, it's like, whoa, you know, shh, you know, get to the toy section. Yeah, there's a whole section of toy pages. Mm, love that. Read that Sears catalog, and I saw a radio in there I wanted. It was a little, little tabletop job. It looked like something, you know, kind of, uh, kind of like a police or firefighter or something like that. And it had an AM radio and a walkie-talkie and a Morse code key. And a big antenna. Gotta have it. So I don't know how I saved up my money, but I did. And I earned enough money for that radio. And we sent off the order to Sears and Roebuck, and I waited. I'm pretty sure that was before UPS was created. <laughs> the only means of delivery was slow. That was back when first-class mail was fast, let's put it that way. But one day, my radio came, and I set it up proudly in my, in my bedroom, and I tried to talk on the walkie-talkie. <laughs> Nobody ever talked back to me. <laughs> I earned that radio. Sears and Roebuck owed me that radio. If they had not sent it to me, there would have been heck to pay. I earned it. God says you can't earn your salvation. It is only a gift from Him. You can't earn it because you don't have any money. You don't have anything to offer Him. God says all of the deeds that you might do for Him, He looks at those and He says, those are just filthy rags because we're sinners to begin with and a sinner cannot offer a righteous thing to God. And that's why the good news is the good news, because salvation is a gift from God. You can have the resurrection power of Christ if you will believe in Christ as your Savior, if you will acknowledge that He was the Son of God, that He died to save you, that you can't save yourself, and you put your faith in that alone. And when you do that, God says the resurrection power of Christ comes into you. And once it comes in, we have to recognize that it's there and start to use it. What do I mean by that? Well, listen to these verses from Ephesians. 
The Apostle Paul prayed for these Christians, these new Christians in the town of Ephesus, and he said, one of the things he prayed was this, I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. In other words, it's like your eyes are closed and, 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 or they're, it's dark in the room. I want to turn the light on. Why? So that you can know. There's something you don't fully know yet, but you need to know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. <clears throat> and you need to know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What God says is, when we come to faith in Christ, we don't fully grasp the power that's within us. Frankly, that's why I'm preaching this sermon today. Because God wants us to understand that the resurrection power of Christ has been put into us. And there's tremendous power available, but if we don't recognize it, we won't use it. You know, I'm a, I'm a computer user. I don't play with my computers. I have a Facebook page, and I check it once every three weeks or so, whether I need to or not. But this little thing does all kinds of stuff. A couple of weeks ago, Raul, he's got one similar to this, a little bit older, not quite so powerful, but similar. He says, <laughs> he'll have this one when I get done with it. But he said... He said, does your phone do this? And he did something with it. And I went, well, I don't know. And so he went, eh. and he goes, yeah, look at that. I think I just ordered a pizza. No. <laughs> My phone does all kinds of things. I mean, it's got all these capabilities. And I use a little dab of it because I don't know what it'll do. Christian, it is the resurrection power of Christ that is within you. And God says you need to recognize that. You need to grow in your understanding of it. And part of the way you do that is to start to exercise that power that's already there. From Romans chapter 6, we read these words. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. When you believe in Christ, you're brought together with Christ in such a way that your sinful nature dies and God raises you. You're, you're connected with him, identified with him. Knowing this, that our old sinful man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. Now, he says, he, he, he says, look, I'm telling you the truth. Your sinful nature was crucified. It cannot control you. You've been raised. There is power within you, the resurrection power. Now, what do you need to do with that? He says, decide that it's true. You need to decide that it's true. The word reckon is an accounting term where you say, where does this belong in the accounting scheme on paper? He said, reckon, decide, figure it out decide, look at the cross and say, my sinful nature is dead. It cannot control me. Stop and look at yourself and say, I'm not stuck. I've been telling myself I'm stuck. The world is telling me I'm stuck. My friends are telling me I'm stuck. I'm not stuck. I have the resurrection power of Christ. And how do you tap that power? Stop presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. He said, look, in your life, every day, there are choices to be made. 
There is the sinful way. There is the righteous way. He said, stop putting yourself at the disposal of sin and start putting yourself at the disposal of God. You say, is it that easy? It's only easy because the resurrection power of God is in us. We've got to exercise the power that God has given us. Yesterday, I went and worked out, as I do every Saturday morning. And, and, uh, and then I, I, I cut it a little bit short because I knew I was going to come home and mow the lawn. And I end up mowing the lawn twice because it's been really tall. And then I did some other things, working around, working around. I had to go to town, do this and that. And, and, and when I sat down at night, after I sat there for a while, I said to my wife, I guess there's going to have to be a lot more exercise before I really get strong. Because at that moment, I thought, I just don't feel like getting up and doing anything right now. I need to exercise more and more because I want to be strong. I might think I've exercised enough, but I haven't. When we start to choose righteousness and choose not to do sin, we tap the resurrection power of God. And as we do that, we grow in our knowledge of it and in our experience of it as well. <clears throat> One of the unprecedented in, in the history of the world, really, but disappointing realities about modern technology is how fast it progresses. You need to be thinking about a new computer every three years or so. And I know some of you IT professionals here are thinking, the three years, Lord. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, you know, if you, if you have decent computer and decent software, three years is pretty good. With cell phones, you need to be always looking for your next one because you're about to drop this one, you know, so it's really <laughs> delicate. I barely got a GPS unit in my car that would give me directions and maps and all that stuff. And then I get a smartphone and it it just does way more than the GPS unit does. You know, the GPS units have almost become obsolete because of some of this. I have software in my computers that gets upgraded every week. comes out, there's an upgrade. Do you, want to, do you want to take it now or do you want to wait later? And, and, you know, eventually you have to take this update to the software. Otherwise, yesterday's software is never good enough. Yesterday's power is never good enough except when it comes to power for life. There was only one resurrection power and nobody has ever improved on it. It's incredible, it's authentic, it's liberating, it's transforming, and it's available. And if you haven't known it yet, you can stop wasting your time and start knowing Christ today. Heavenly Father, help us to know the resurrection power of Christ Help us to, to use it, to see it, to grow in it. Father, if there's anybody here who's never come to know that power for the first time, open their eyes today. Open their heart. Help them to believe like you helped Saul to believe, like you have helped all of us who are believers. Thank you for Resurrection Day, for the power that has transformed our world and our lives. I pray in Christ's name, amen.